Hello, good morning, and may God bless you as you share this worship with us today. It's a time when the world is horrified by the war which has begun in Ukraine, and our prayers are with that country and with those affected. May God show himself as king in these difficult days. We begin with a call to worship from Psalm 99 and we'll sing a hymn that celebrates that truth. The Lord is King. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Mighty King, lover of justice, you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Extol the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say. prayer today let's use the words of the Lord's Prayer and reflect on what they mean our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. We ask for the glory of God to be revealed to a needy and suffering world. We ask for daily provision in our own lives. We ask for your forgiveness for the sins of the week and of today and for the power and grace to offer forgiveness to those who have harmed us or those we love. We ask to be kept from evil and delivered at last into your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's listen to two songs which encourage us to see God in his splendour. Oh God. 
We've just sung, I want to see you. Our first reading is an account of someone who saw God face to face. Moses comes down from the mountain with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments in his hands and the people can immediately see he's been with God. Let's listen to our reading from Exodus. 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses covered his face with a veil whenever he was away from the presence of God so that the Israelites wouldn't be dazzled and scared by the shining face. Our next reading picks up that theme. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The glory that accompanied the giving of the law on Sinai was overwhelming. The people were forbidden from even touching the mountain. The power and holiness of God was so great upon it. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. That's from Exodus chapter 24. And yet Paul says that glory is now set aside because a greater, more glorious revelation of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And whereas only Moses was permitted to view the glory of God, now all of us are able to gaze on that glory, just as we would look into a mirror. And it's a mirror that doesn't just reflect back what we are. It transforms us into the perfect image of Christ that we see there. The presence of the Lord shines all around, burns with holy fire, cleanses, heals and brings his grace. Let's sing together. Be still, for the presence of the Lord, the Holy One, is here. Reverence and 
Eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Our readings today are all about transformation. In the Old Testament reading, we saw Moses transformed by his encounter with God, leaving his face shining to such an extent that he had to wear a veil over his face to avoid frightening those who saw him. Our reading from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians uses the story of that transformation in order to express to the followers of Jesus just how much more glorious the gospel is than the law which went before. Rather than a cowering nation with a transformed leader, we are a kingdom of transformed people who are becoming more and more like our transformed king. As we look at the story of the transfiguration according to Luke's report, we'll try and contemplate the Lord's glory and give space for God's spirit to continue his work at transforming us into his image. This story shows us, first of all, something of the glory 
of who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. The account begins with eight days after these sayings. So we have to go back a bit and see what those sayings were. In the previous chapter, Luke describes what we call Peter's confession. Jesus asks his disciples who people think he is and then challenges them to say what they think. Peter declares that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Now that they're starting to see that truth, Jesus begins to tell them that he has to die and will rise again. Luke then adds a solemn saying of Jesus, as I have to die, so anyone who wishes to follow me must also take up their cross and prepare to lose their lives. They are the ones who will welcome, not fear, the coming of the Son of Man in his glory. Eight days later, three of the disciples are given a glimpse of that glory. Luke says the face of Jesus was changed. Matthew tells us it shone like the sun. His clothes, Mark says, were dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Matthew says they were white as light. Luke says they were as bright as a flash of lightning. None of these, remember, were eyewitnesses. They are reporting what Peter, James and John told them. I like the variation in the descriptions. It somehow has the ring of truth as they were searching for words to express what it was the amazed three disciples had described to them. So what does this transfigured appearance say about who Jesus was? Well, he was God revealed. John says years later, no doubt remembering this occasion, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That's in John's gospel, chapter one. Jesus, the Christ who walked the earth, was the word, the creative power behind the whole universe. Remember Charles Wesley's great words in the Christmas hymn, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, for this brief moment, the veil is lifted and three awestruck disciples gaze upon Jesus in his glory the Holy One of God. The blazing splendour, like the sun or like bolts of lightning, speaks of many things, of power, of purity, of holiness, of the fact that God is truly not like us. He's unapproachable. He's incomprehensible. Only by coming in human form can his power, his beauty, his holiness and his burning love be revealed in a way that can win our hearts and in our, win our devotion. In Jesus, God is made flesh and lives among us. And then he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The disciples saw Jesus talking with two of the most significant figures of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. They represent the law and the prophets meeting with the one who was the fulfilment of both. Moses was read every week in the synagogue and his laws were dissected and discussed. In Jesus' disputes with the scribes and teachers of the law, it's the name of Moses which keeps cropping up. He was the founder of the nation who brought his people out of slavery and to the borders of the promised land. You could say he was the bedrock and the beating heart of their faith for the Jewish people. What a leap of understanding and revelation it is, therefore, that Paul, a Pharisee and well-versed in the law, sees so clearly that what Moses received from God, though unspeakably glorious, was so far below the glory of the new work of God in Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians. Christ fulfills the law. 
He hones it to its heart meaning of love for God and for others. He keeps all its requirements and becomes a perfect sinless sacrifice for the law-breaking of all mankind. He plants God's law in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and makes us long for holiness rather than rebelling against it. He makes us, you could say, natural keepers of God's law rather than the unnatural lawbreakers that we were before. Then there was Elijah. You'll remember that when Jesus asked who people thought he was, Elijah was one of the opinions. Although he didn't himself speak of the coming of the Messiah, he was expected to appear at any time as the forerunner. He stands here as symbolising and representing thousands of years of messianic prophecy from the first utterance in Eden following the fall. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the last words of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. Christ fulfills the prophets. He's the one foreseen by so many. The Messiah, the suffering servant, the coming king, great David's greater son. All of the disparate strands come together in him. He's the power of God which Elijah witnessed on Carmel. And he is the still, small voice Elijah heard in the cave, lonely and disheartened. Christ is all and in all. It's worth quoting the words of, Mas of Malachi in full, since they connect so clearly with what we're thinking about today. Here they are. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And in that day that is coming, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. That's from Malachi chapter 4. As the Old Testament story closes, Moses and Elijah are on the lips of the prophet. And here they are with Jesus. And then the glory of who Jesus is, he is the son of God. We all know that Peter, the one with the big mouth, made that critical error when he saw the three figures in conversation. Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Luke adds, a bit unnecessarily, he didn't know what he was saying. You know, in one sense, Peter was making a huge leap in his understanding of Jesus. He was regarding him as the equal of two giants of the faith. But he wasn't leaping far enough. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. There is a big difference between servants of God, however exalted, and the Son of God. And then we think of the glory of what Jesus did. The conversation with Moses and Elijah was, the topic was this, the forthcoming death of Jesus. His death was no accident, it was a God-devised strategy by which the world would be rescued from death and the power of Satan broken. Now, this isn't an imaginative reworking of the story after the event. It's there in the heart of this conversation a week before Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's there in the very language which Luke reports. Listen to what he says. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Departures are planned. 
It was the culmination of his life's work, the objective of his ministry, the gateway to his eternal reign and the means through which he would bring many sons and daughters to glory, as it says in Hebrews. But you know, there's even more significance. The word Luke uses for departure is the Greek word exodus. Just think about that. They were speaking about his exodus which he was about to bring to fulfilment. Think of all that the word exodus conjures up. It speaks of God's love for his people. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and through his great strength. That's from Deuteronomy. It speaks of his power by his presence and his great strength. It speaks of his faithfulness in keeping his promises later on in Deuteronomy. It says this, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It speaks of redemption from slavery. The Lord redeemed you from the land of slavery. It's no coincidence that the exodus which Jesus was to accomplish at Jerusalem would take place at the time of Passover. The exodus led by Moses was celebrated each year by the Passover feast. The connections between that exodus and the exodus of Jesus are numerous and detailed. A lamb was slain. There was blood on the lintel and doorposts. Those who were under the blood were saved from the death that visited every other household. The people fled to safety with their foes destroyed behind them. They met with God in the desert and began to discover who it was who had saved them, what devotion God required from them as his redeemed people, and what their God-appointed destiny was, a land flowing with milk and honey where God would rule as king. How clearly that all parallels the blessings that we, the people of God, have received through Christ's exodus were saved from the judgment of God by sheltering under the blood of the Lamb of God. We're released from slavery, slavery to the law, slavery to sin and Satan, slavery to the wickedness that's in the world. We're set on a journey towards a land where we'll live in safety and in the presence of God, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. And we're given a new law, written on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone the law of love towards God and towards our neighbour. In the words of Jesus, the whole and the, of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, is summed up in this law of love. The disciples spent three years with Jesus gradually in fits and starts, increasing in their understanding of who he was. Jan perversely encouraged by their slowness of heart and lack of faith, even as they spent so much time in his presence, because it chimes in with my own dullness and unbelief. There were the glimpses of glory, the coming of the Spirit on Jesus at his baptism, the stilling of the storm when Peter threw himself before him in worship and said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But alongside that, there was the humanity, asleep in a boat, sitting exhausted by the side of a well, asking for a drink. They saw him joyous. They saw him deeply saddened, weeping before the tomb of Lazarus. They saw him angry at the impact of evil on people's lives, frustrated and despairing that he could not gather Jerusalem into his arms like a hen does with her chicks. And soon, Peter, James and John would see him groaning and weeping in Gethsemane, abandoned by God on the cross and laid in a tomb in utter defeat. But then risen, ascended, glorified. How much there is of Jesus and in Jesus for us to contemplate. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about a veil being over the faces of those who don't believe, speaking particularly in this context of the Jews. 
They read the books of Moses, but they don't see the Messiah. We don't have those veils. Our eyes are opened by the Spirit to see Jesus from beginning to end of the Bible. And we can contemplate his glory with the indwelling Spirit as guide. How tragic that we spend so little effort and time in doing this. Because it's through gazing on Jesus in all of his human and divine perfections, in his degradation and in his glory, that we ourselves become changed. We all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May that be true of us. May our faces shine because we've spent time in God's presence. And may that light illuminate all of those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, I come to you. Let my heart be changed. Renewed. Flowing from the grace that I found in you. And Lord, I've come to know the weaknesses I see in me will be stripped away. See you face to face the 
I'm going to invite you to take this time quietly to pray for those around you. To pray for those you care for. To pray for the needs of the world. To pray for peace in Ukraine. To pray for Christians everywhere who are sharing the gospel, feeding the hungry and healing the sick. Lord, hear our prayer. You might like to just pause this video and take some moments to offer your own prayers to God. And now we sing our last hymn, which ends with the great promise, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place. Love divine, all loves excelling.
May your heart be filled with the love of God this week and may that love overflow to those around you. May your faces shine as you are transformed continually day by day and made more and more like Jesus. May the peace of God work its way into the hearts of those who are intent on war and bring comfort to those who suffer. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and evermore. Amen.